Coming to you direct from the heart of New York City, all the way to wherever you are, you're listening to the VIP Jazzwell Report. Winston Churchill once said, We make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. And nowhere is that more true about building a life by being a part of the U.S. Army. In fact, the U.S. Army could be the last bastion of where true American values like patriotism, honor, code, loyalty, respect, and so much more reside. However, it's surprising to hear that so many of us do not really know much about these patriots and what they do for us and also what opportunities they can provide for us. Today, we have one of these patriots on the show. He's been with the U.S. Army for over 30 years, and to the best of my knowledge, he won't be leaving anytime soon. In his military career, he served as a vehicle operator, a certified addictions counselor, an equal opportunity specialist, a public affairs officer, a student squadron commander, and let me take a deep breath here uh, because there's so much he does, and the chief instructor evaluator at the U.S. Air Force Officer Training School. His major decorations include the Bronze Star Medal and the Meritorious Service Medal with one Oak Leaf Cluster. He won an Emmy in 2012 for his role in producing a PBS special on Iowa soldiers in Afghanistan. But all this pales in comparison to his latest achievement, which is to come on the VIP Jazzwell Report. It's an <laughs> honor to have Major Peter Shin on the show. Welcome, Major. Well, thank you, and I have to agree with you, VIP. It certainly is an honor to be on the air with you. Hua. <laughs> Where does Hua come from? Because I checked up on the Internet, and it, it was originally used by the British in the late 1800s in Afghanistan but more recently adopted by the U.S. Army to indicate affirmative or a pleased response. That's a true statement. And, in fact, the people in the Army that I spoke to who did that, because I've spent most of my career in the Air Force, but when I deployed with the Army, I asked them, where does Hua come from? Mm. And they told me, they told me, well, it comes from this place. And that I heard three or four different stories dating back to the Civil War, but I hadn't heard it came from the British. The Army will be surprised to hear that. And what a way to start the show, right? <laughs> now, I read your list of achievements. And, I mean, it's, you know, it's diverse. On, on one end, you're doing an equal opportunity specialist role. On, on the other end, you're doing public affairs. Uh, did you ever hold a rifle at this point? I have held a rifle mm. as a public affairs officer. When I deployed to Afghanistan, I went with an Army unit. There were five of us who were in the Air Force and 59 uh, who were in the Army. We were National Guard uh, members from Iowa who went to teach agriculture to Afghan farmers. But we went to a dangerous part of that country. We were three kilometers from the Pakistani border, and we never went outside the gate without 20 of our closest armed friends. We were all in body armor, and we were all armed. Uh, and that was for our safety and for also the safety of those that we were trying to help. So, yeah, I've carried a weapon. <laughs> and, but it's amazing, uh, at all the, it's amazing at all the roles you've done in the military. Your mom must be proud. I mean, what made you join, first of all? Tell us your sort of give us a bit of background as to what happened 30 years ago. What made you start and then how you developed? Well, sure. Uh, I would say that all of the things that I've done in the military, one could argue that it simply means that I haven't been able to hold a job very well. But uh, <laughs> on the other hand, I have been able to stay in all this time. And, and I never expected, Vip, to be in more than four years, 
Never expected that in a million years because mm. when when I joined the Air Force initially back in 1984, I thought that I was joining primarily for educational benefits, and I thought I was joining primarily so that I would have a roof over my head and clothing on my back and a paycheck and three meals a day because I was lacking all of those things. Uh, when I joined the military in 1984, I was essentially a homeless person. I, I was staying with a series of friends. Uh, my father had died uh, several years earlier. I have 10 brothers and sisters, uh, eight of whom are still living. And our family had essentially fragmented after my father passed away unexpectedly. He was a young man, 51 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother had a history of mental illness. And uh, God rest her soul, she passed away uh, more than a decade ago as well. And so I really didn't have a lot of folks that I could turn to in my life. But I had one thing. I had an idea that if I can't, got into a situation where all else failed, right. that I could go to the military and they would take care of me. And the reason that I had this idea of it was because I had an older brother, Christopher, who, when he was 18 years old, had joined the Air Force. And he had gone to Vietnam, and he had learned to become an air traffic controller. Mm -hmm. And his whole life after that point had been a success. And so I thought, well, if Christopher could do it, and if that worked for him, then me, an extremist, it might just work for me as well. And that's why I joined the military, because I had an example of an older brother who, who had done well after he'd gone into the Air Force, but also because I really felt like I needed some direction and guidance and um, a place that would take care of me. Now, I had no idea all of the positive things that the military would do for me because I needed essentially to be parented, as so many 18-year-olds do. And the Air Force and the military provide young men and women a wholesome structure that is based on integrity, is based on service, and is based on excellence. Not that I knew any of that at the time, but all of that transformed my life over the period of the last three decades, and I will never, ever be able to give back to the military as much as the military has given to me. Now, you know, you exemplify, uh, you and your colleagues actually exemplify Winston Churchill's quote, and that's what I love about the Army, the, the strong values, because sometimes in society I feel we've lost all those. But you know what I find the irony in your life is you said you were pretty much homeless with, with really no life. Um, and then you're going into a scenario where you have to be willing to sacrifice your life. Well, that's true. And, of course, like so many young people, I didn't mm. entirely think of it in those terms. I mean, I thought about what was in it for me right. at that time. It, didn't, it took a long time for me to really appreciate the fact that what was in it for me was the ability to give something back to a society that had really you know, done well for me. And, um, you know, it's all about, at this point in my career, it's about the ability to continue to serve. Now, and you 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 said in, in the beginning that you were, you had a time frame of four years. Now, four has become 30, and, and like I said, you know, there's, uh, to the best of my knowledge, you won't be leaving anytime soon. What's kept you in? That's a That's a great question. And the short answer to that question is that as I developed a sense of what the military had done for me, mm -hmm. I felt compelled to continue to try and do something for the military. 
And that was true even at, at a point where I joined the reserve component. And so the reserve component consists of the Army or Air Force Reserve, or in some cases the Navy Reserve, but in my case the Air Force Reserve. And it also consists of the National Guard, the Army National Guard, and the Air National Guard. And so even when it was, I felt like I needed to go into the civilian community because I had never really had an opportunity to have a civilian career. I joined right when I was 18 years old. Mm -hmm. And so when I was about 28 years old, I thought, well, gee, if I don't now try and make a civilian career for myself, maybe I'll never have the chance. But I didn't want to take off the uniform entirely. And so I joined the National Guard. And of course, you can join the National Guard directly. You don't have to be on active duty first. You can just join the Guard directly if you want. I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know much about the National Guard. And in fact, I think I would suspect that a lot of people don't know that much about it. Well, you're right, because in recent times with this Ferguson issue and things like that, the, the, the name National Guard um, has sort of come into prominence. So clarify for us, what's the purpose of the National Guard in times of crisis at home and potential civil unrest? Well, really, the, the National Guard is your first choice mm. for homeland defense. So when governors think about, when people think about who do we have to defend the homeland, we think, first of all, of the National Guard. We have a militia heritage in this country. And But, you know, let sense. me just interrupt there. In my, my, if I was to think as a civilian through my ignorance, I would say my first point of call would be the police. And, of course, that's, that's true in the mm. sense of you're talking about crime. But if you're talking about, uh, if you're talking about homeland defense, there's, a, there's obviously a difference between crime and, uh, and for example, large-scale unrest or, or the potential enemy threat. Uh, so, yes, of course, uh, for crime, one calls the police. But for things that are beyond the scope of law enforcement, certainly are the first choice within our own borders is the National Guard. But isn't that the only choice as well? Well, it's, that's a very good point, actually. I mean, to a certain extent, yes, that's true. Hmm. I mean, if you talk about, for example, Hurricane Katrina or Deepwater Horizon right. or any, any one of a number of Hurricane Sandy, for example, who is the governor going to call on? The governor is going to call on the National Guard within his or her own borders. Now, how does the military work with other national agencies like the fire and police department in times of national crisis? Well, the, the answer to that question, most simply, is very well. Mm. Uh, it's, we have a number of people called emergency preparedness liaison officers and defense coordinating officials. These people work within the states, right. and they, as the name suggests, help liaise and help coordinate the efforts of the National Guard and other armed forces and other interagency partners so that... We all are working together. And we saw that, I think, work exceptionally well, for example, during Superstorm Sandy. What are the common misperceptions of, of the National Guard or the U.S. Army? Well, I think one of the common misconceptions that might involve the National Guard is mm. that we are strictly for homeland defense. And while we're certainly the first choice for homeland defense, we're also a proven choice in terms of war fighting. But now defense, last, defense from what perspective? As in who's attacking us? What are you defending? Well, for strong. example, well, air, let's start with, for example, the mission of First Air Force. I work for First Air Force right, right. now. I'm a, 
I, I work for a guy named General Bill Etter, who is the commander of First Air Force, and his primary job, among several others, but one of his primary jobs is defending the United States from aerial attack. For, mm-hmm. Essentially, the job of First Air Force, among others, is to prevent another 9-11-style attack on the United States. And certainly, uh, over the last 13 years, we've been very, very successful. So not everybody knows, for example, that First Air Force exists or that there's a whole group of dedicated men and women across the country who are looking at our American airspace, controlling it, and ensuring that we're safe at all times from aerial attack. But that's happening right now, and that's being done primarily by National Guard members. Now, in, in, in your career in, in, the, in the last 30 years, you've been a public affairs officer. What have you found that civilians have a misperception of when it comes to the U.S. military? Well, that's Give me, a, give me that's three that you guys have tackled, three issues that have existed. Well, I think one of them is, is as I mentioned, this idea that the National Guard is only for homeland defense. And mm. we know that that's not true. Uh, for example, really, about a third of the combat power of the entire active-duty Air Force and more than a third of the combat power of the active-duty Army is made up of the National Guard, either the Army National Guard or the Air National Guard. And I will tell you that the National Guard plays a key role in overseas engagements. Uh, for example, uh, this is something that many people probably don't know, but there is a robust state partnership program that exists where the National Guard, every member of every state of the Union, all 54 states, all three territories in the District of Columbia, they all have international partners where they have long-standing relationships with these countries. For example, the District of Columbia uh, just got back from a partnership engagement with Jamaica. Mm -hmm. And there are a million other examples that I could tell you, 74 in all state partnership programs, where the National Guard reaches out to various other countries and has these enduring relationships that are long-standing in nature that really help promote American values and uh, promote American, really American power overseas in places where you might otherwise not otherwise think that they'd, they'd be. So that's a key issue for us is let's, this idea that we are engaged overseas. Let's bring it home. Now, National Guard, let's reverse it, is God the nation. Right now, with more of these lone wolf uh, terror attacks that are happening, do you guys see your role as increasing because now you're actually having to protect the motherland from from these sort of characters? Well, I would say that that's always been a concern mm. of the National Guard, and in terms of our partnership, uh, our longstanding partnership with various law enforcement agencies, mm. we have a great concern about these sorts of attackers that are very difficult to identify and uh, can be very challenging to prevent. But uh, yes, I would say that it's fair to say that that's a a, a great concern, but it's no, I would say also that it has been a concern for some time. Uh, Obviously, the events related to uh, ISIS and so forth, where they're making these kinds of threats and attempting to incite lone wolf violence, raise the level of profile. But it doesn't change the fact that we've been very concerned about these sorts of things for uh, for as long as these types of lone wolves have, have existed. So but, I would say that it's not a recent development in terms of our level of concern or efforts to prevent those types of attacks from occurring. Now, with these, you know, talking about misperceptions of, of the U.S. Army, um, among the younger generation, has being part of the U.S. Army lost its status in society? 
I don't think that in some ways I would say I would say sure in that you know a, a young person may not know anybody who's ever been in the army. We have a very small number of people mm. in the United States who have ever actually served and I've heard various numbers thrown around maybe it's 3%, maybe it's 1%, but it's a tiny percentage of the American population mm. that has actually ever served in uniform. So to the extent that a young person may not know anybody in their life who has ever served, that creates, in some cases, a potential information gap for them, because obviously it becomes more difficult to explore that space if you don't have anybody personally that you could go and talk to about it and say, hey, what was that like? I mean, even in my own case, as I was mentioning, had my brother Christopher, God rest his soul, not decided to join the Air Force, Chances are that thought would never have crossed my mind when I needed uh, needed a place to turn to well, in that, my late teen years. That leads to awareness, right? Because I don't see the U.S. Army um, promoting itself very extensively. Uh, part of the problem could be that maybe I'm not in the younger demographic, which you were kind enough to mention, I think, a few days ago. Um, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, taking it forward in in, in terms of um, for a recruitment drive and, and, and things like that. I, I, I see the ads come on occasionally and, and, and it's seasonally on, on, on TV. But in like in some of the Asian media, there isn't a lot, which then leads to the misperception that is the army diverse enough for me? You know, that's a serious issue that I will tell you that the top leaders of our National Guard are extremely concerned about. Right. You know, General Grass, who's the chief of the National Guard Bureau, a diversity is a top priority for him. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you that this issue of, hey, do we look enough like the communities that we're defending, that's an issue that has the attention of our leadership. And they're taking, I think, important steps to address that issue because we are, at the end of the day, uh, the National Guard is community-based. We're your hometown Army and your hometown Air Force. And so uh, I think our leaders recognize that it's important that, uh, from a demographic point of view and from a thought point of view, that we have a, a representative a group of soldiers and airmen uh, to make up our Army and National Guard units. And um, we have a strategic plan that uh, General Grass just signed into place to, to try and affect greater change in that regard. But as to your specific point about, hey, I, I don't see the ads, I guess I would suggest to you that you may not watch enough Sports Center, Vip. No, I don't, actually. That's a very good guess. <laughs> and I, I have to laugh because that's, you know, they, they spend, and when I say they, I'm talking about the military, mm-hmm. they spend many millions of dollars a year on, on specifically targeted advertising. And because it's targeted, uh, middle-aged men, not that you're middle-aged, Biff, I'm sure you're... No, I'm beyond that. People. I'm beyond that. <laughs> That's what my wife so, says anyway. <laughs> uh, well, and uh, uh, my wife says the same thing. Uh, but the, the point is, is that we may not see the, the advertising as much as, as the targeted audience, which mm. is by, by nature going to be more youthful. You see, when I was at the diversity conference, I saw the the, the, the intentions and, and the opportunities and um, just the whole uh, intention of, of opening themselves to diversity, which I don't think they were not open. I think they've always been open. But I think when, like, 
the Asians don't feel that they are the armies promoting themselves in their media space, I guess the perception is they feel it's not for them. Well, and I guess I would say I don't know for sure what the what the exact marketing strategy mm. is on the part of the Army National Guard or the Air National Guard, for that matter. So I'm not in a position to say they are or aren't uh, targeting the right groups of people or using the right media to get at those groups of people. No, because when I, I was there, when I was there, I just saw that, you know what, if you're good enough, you're in. And, and, and well, if and you're great enough, you'll go places, you know, and, and that way the army is structured uh, to give equal opportunity and the success to anyone who proves themselves. Well, and you get right to the issue here of standards, Viv. Mm. And, and the fact is that although it's very important for us as an organization to have the most diverse group of, of soldiers and airmen as, as possible, both from a... Uh, both from a demographic and from a thought perspective. At the end of the day, one of the things that differentiates the armed forces from other groups in society is that we have very significant, measurable, and I would say highly important standards of entry, standards of conduct, standards of behavior, and we require you to meet those standards. Even if we, for example, I mean, that's the entry point. Right. Yes, it's important that we have demographic diversity. But at the end of the day, if you cannot meet standards, you can't be a part of this group. And that's, that's just the way that our, that's the way that the organization is structured. And it's structured that way for a number of different reasons. But most important is that we in the military have a sacred trust to defend the nation. At the end of the day, you want your military professionals to be, I think, really representing the best of what the society has to offer. And I think and I so, said that. You know, I said that in, in my speech that I gave you guys, that, you know, uh, the best man for the job is the one who gets it done. Or the best woman for the job, for that matter. Well, I said, yeah, and the best one is not the one, <laughs> of, is not a gender, it's not a color, it's the one who gets it done. And I could not agree more. And that's, that's the military ethos, mm. is that it's about the standard. Right. It's about the, the individual and your, your sense of service, your personal integrity, your sense of loyalty, right. your respect, your personal commitment. And so all of these things make the military member, once they are properly indoctrinated and understand what their really what their very serious purpose is, uh, it makes them one hopes uh, again amongst the the best that society has to offer. And that may not that may take a while to to percolate into a young soldier or a young airman. It does, uh, but, it does. But I think um, if someone wanted to join, because when I went onto the website, I got a little confused. But then I, I get confused over the simplest of things. Um, how young do you have to be to join? What's the minimum well, you age? Can, you can join at 17 years old with your parents' permission. Then. And, you're, and, and how old do you have to be before well, you can't can, join? Well, in the National Guard, at the, sometimes those, those dates can change. Mm -hmm. uh, but as of a couple of years ago, you could be as old as 42 years old and still join. 
Now, they may have changed that uh, back to 35, so those numbers can vary. But the key thing is just go see a recruiter. And a recruiter will be able to tell you, hey, here's what the standards are. Here's whether or not you meet the standards. Here's what you might need to do to meet the standards. For example, you might not meet the standard now. You might, and this is not uncommon from what I understand. You have a young man or a young woman who does not currently meet the weight standard for entry. Right. Well, if they lose the weight and get themselves in shape, well, guess what? You meet standards and now you can join. Okay. But there's a the whole roster of standards. So people should go to a recruiter or, or call a number and find out where they can get one. Right. Wanted to ask you, if, if someone just wanted to call rather than, you know, youngsters are lazy. They don't want to go anywhere. But, <laughs> well, they, but they are happy to text. They're happy to maybe, maybe, maybe make a call because it involves speaking more than a sentence. What, what, what's the number that they can call if they have questions? Well, the easiest number is 1-800-GO-GUARD. That's 1-800-GO-GUARD. That's it. I mean, and that number is actually 464-8273, but it's a lot easier just to say 1-800-GO-GUARD. Now, you said you can join at 17 as long as you have your parents' permission. That's true. Why do you feel parents should recommend their children to join? That, from my point of view, that's that's an easy one, and it's mm. it's funny because none of my children have wanted to join. But nevertheless, uh, for, from my point of view, why a parent might consider their child, why giving, why they might consider to give permission, or why they should applaud their child's decision to join the military, uh, it's it's really quite simple. I mean, beyond the benefits, and there are a number of benefits to joining, including but not limited to educational benefits and potentially even retirement benefits if they stay around long enough. But beyond any kind of benefits that the military might offer their son or daughter, the most important thing for me is that it is an honorable undertaking and an honorable profession to to take up the sword and shield and say, raise your hand and say, I promise to defend my nation. That's an honorable thing. Uh, and without a doubt, so, without a doubt. Uh, so for me, as a, as a parent, is there some risk involved? Yes, of course, there's some risk involved. But there's also risk in not doing anything. You know, uh, evil, evil, evil continues to thrive when good men and good women do nothing about it. And Talking about... From my point of view, I, and I see these things rather extremely in a certain sense, mm-hmm. I'll be honest with you. I, I really believe that the U.S. military is a force for good. It's a force for good in a young person's life, and it's a force for good around the world in most cases most of the time. Yes, of course, uh, there are going to be people who do unfortunate things from time to time. But overall, uh, if you take a look at history, the U.S. military has overwhelmingly been a force for good. And so what I would tell a parent is your son or daughter is doing a good thing. What problems do you face with recruitment these days? A lot of kids have tattoos. A uh, few of them are into substance abuse. And then, you, you know, we, we had a discussion um, a few days ago. Uh, you said obesity was a huge problem. Well, it, it's true. I mean, and, you know, obviously the military does require you to have some degree of, of physical fitness. Oh, you would think. And so, yeah. Yeah, well, there's no question about it. And so when you have two-thirds of the country who is overweight or obese, 
uh, that is a serious issue of standards. And so all of the things that you're that you're mentioning here, of the from obesity mm. to excessive tattoos to substance abuse to prior criminal records, all of these things come on come under the heading the broad heading of standards. And so it does that. I, I, you know, I'm not a recruiter and I've not been one. But from the recruiters I've spoken to, one of the issues that they face is any time that they're trying to recruit, the first question they have to ask is, does this applicant meet standards? And they have to ask a whole series of questions to determine that fact. But if you had a tattoo, if you had a tattoo that you can't see where, when you're wearing a normal uniform, can you still get in? Well, and the short answer is it depends. It depends on, for example, you know, let's take a whole sleeve. Let's take a, in the Air Force, there's a standard that says, hey, if it covers 25% or more of your body, mm. uh, then it, that's, that does not conform to standards. And so um, there might be something that could be hidden under the pants uh, that it covers all of this area, but does not meet standards. And so um, I'm not an expert on the tattoo rules. There are very specific regulations that govern what is or is not acceptable. Right. But suffice it to say, that, yeah, that could be an issue that is disqualifying, even if you have someone who is physically fit, is otherwise very intelligent, uh, may have all the desire in the world to join, but that decision has made it so that they no longer meet standards. And Yeah, you know, like I, I said, you know what, we shouldn't, I mean, we are a melting pot, but we shouldn't melt away. Um, and, 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 and we need to have certain standards, and I fully support that. Because if you allow someone with, say, even a little tattoo, then the other people who are who haven't had tattoos are going to say, well, you allowed him, and I'm going to get one just like that. Well, uh, in the bigger picture, of course, any time that you weaken standards, mm. you, you it is a slippery slope. And so that's one of the, the issues that leaders really have to deal with. And that's a serious concern for leaders of, of any organization, of course, is what are my organization's standards? Mm. How rigorously are they enforced? What do they mean? Why do we have them? And, of course, in our case in the military, we have standards for a host of good reasons, not limited to this whole concept of good order, morale, and discipline, which is necessary for the effectiveness of a fighting force. And we are that. You know, at the end of the day, among many other things and many other missions, at the end of the day, we are a a fighting force. Right. You're there to guard us. Um, Part of your role, you said, in my intro, I said, was you're a certified addictions counselor. I was at one time, although you have to do continuing education to maintain currency in that but field. And what, I have not what, been current in that field for many years. But is there an addiction problem in the Army? Well, there's an addiction problem in society, Deb. Right. And so, to, you know, the military is, a, is certainly a microcosm of society. Mm-hmm. And, to, and to the extent that you have addiction problems in the culture, uh, there will, of course, be a certain number of soldiers or airmen or sailors or Marines who also have problems with addiction. Right. Now, I will tell you that it's, uh, it's the policy of the military to try and help people uh, if they become addicted while they're in the service, or if uh, for some reason they were able to slip through the cracks with a pre-existing condition. We certainly want to help people, but in many cases that will be incompatible with further service. And it obviously each case is determined on a case-by-case basis. 
Now tell me, uh, obviously in the U.S. Army, just based on your resume alone, the U.S. Ha- US Army has so many opportunities. Um, what are the opportunities for those who are not inclined to fight? Wimps like myself. <laughs> well, I would... First of all, you had the courage to take me on for for almost an entire hour, Vip. So that's your that's wife said. Your right wife there. said that would be a piece of cake. <laughs> it was but, her uh, that I didn't want to interview. <laughs> that's that's a fair statement there. <laughs> but uh, you know the, the the fact is, Vip, that if you don't want to fight, mm. what the the ideal solution is is twofold. I mean, one, you could become a civilian employee. And we Tell have, me more about that because you know what that that I, I didn't know that existed. And that's purely my ignorance. I'm sure most of our listeners do. But to elaborate on that. Well, there's a a component of the the total force, both in the Army and the Air Force. Mm. Really, all throughout the Department of Defense are civil servants, uh, government service employees who provide important services uh, for uh, for all of the armed forces. They're civilians. Uh, they're government employees, but they sure do important work. And it's not just uh, it's not just GS employees too. Many contractors work with the military in in non-combat, but very important roles. And I think it's very safe to say that you know we're uh, we're just as dependent in many ways on our civilian employees as we are our, our men and women in uniform. And in, I, in fact, I think it's really fair to say that uh, you know our civilian employees and contractors and others who support the military rarely get the same kind of shout-out or thanks as do our brothers and sisters in uniform. But we couldn't do our jobs without them. So that's a, that's a, real, uh, that's a real career path for, for people who are interested in maybe being a part or helping the military, but who don't want to put on the uniform. Um, I like the uniform, actually. So does my wife. Uh, and I'm going to ask you later where I can get one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what are the advantages of being in the U.S. Army? Well, beyond the... I mean, is the, is the pay competitive? Let's get to the basics. The pay and benefits, yeah. are they competitive? The short answer is it, it depends. I mean, for example, let's take, let's take a, a fighter pilot. Now, hmm. there's no real comparable civilian career field to a fighter pilot. No, there isn't, no, thankfully. I mean, you could say, well, what about the airlines? And the airlines, certainly, that's a source of competition for pilots. But, you know, from the standpoint of, is it... Is it more financially rewarding to be an Air Force fighter pilot or to be a, uh, a pilot for Delta? I don't really know the answer to that question, to tell you the truth. But what I do know is that, hey, there's no substitute for the kinds of experiences that you can have in the military. And, I, you know, I certainly have felt like it's been a good opportunity for me. You know, to a certain extent... You can talk about dollars and cents, and in fact, you know, pay scales are a matter of public record. If anybody wants to know what any particular member of any particular rank makes, they can look it up. Uh, simple Google search on, on a military pay scale will tell you what everybody in the military gets paid. But you know, one, but, thing, I, one thing I felt, the vibe I felt when I was uh, at the U.S. Army base um, among, among your colleagues was they're not doing it for the money. The money could be less maybe than where... If, if there was something comparable. But there was a certain level of camaraderie, a certain level of, a certain sense of purpose that I saw that, that they were doing it for that. There was a, that, that vibe I got from being there is, is 
a vibe that's not available in the corporate world. Am I right? Well, I, I certainly think so. And, mm. and I say that as somebody who worked as a part-time National Guardsman. Mm. We talked earlier about, you know, misconceptions about the military. There is such a thing as a part-time military person. Right. And, um, and that, that exists in the National Guard. So I've been in corporate America, and I've been full-time in the military. And I agree with you a thousand percent, Viv. Ultimately, there's no substitute for the sort of camaraderie that's available in the armed forces. Um, and I will tell you that that's, that feeling becomes even more intense when you deploy and you put your life into the hands of other men and women, and they put their lives into your hands. And that's a, that's a feeling that is very difficult to replicate uh, in any other walk of life, frankly. And there's, uh, can you put a price tag on that? I can't. I can't put a price tag on that. That's been the most, in some ways, the most valuable experience of my life to have that experience. Uh, so, and there's no other way to do it that I know of other than through the military. Talking about putting your life in the hands of the commander-in-chief, who's been the most popular commander-in-chief, the, the US, U.S. president for the Army? Well, over the last 30 years, mm. I would say that, uh, that the most, obviously the most popular president was probably Ronald Reagan. And the reason I say that, and I'm not saying anything bad about any of the commanders and chiefs, but he was wildly popular in large measure because he ushered in a series of pay raises and he just brought a different, whole different level of support to the military. You know, it was Ronald Reagan really who uh, kind of started hammering home. He, you know, many people still re re refer to him as the great communicator. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he communicated to the American people was the value of the U.S. military and how important the military was to the defense of a free society and to the defense, really, of Western civilization. And uh, no one really communicated that as well, I don't think. Uh, no, I wish the other presidents would, because that's why I said, you know what, have you guys in some way being misconceived by society because there aren't enough people sort of putting you on a pedestal that, that, that you need to be at? Especially well, at times like these, you know. You know, it's funny you say that, but I certainly feel wonderfully well appreciated whenever I'm anywhere in uniform. I mean, I can't go anywhere in public in uniform without somebody thanking me for my service. And I, I certainly appreciate it, mm -hmm. uh, but it's, it really wasn't that way. When I first came in in 84, the American public was still rewarming itself back up to the U.S. military. I, I mean, I remember in the 70s when I was a boy, it seemed like the military was not an honorable profession. And, um, it, there, you know, the country was reeling from uh, Vietnam still, and the military itself uh, had kind of a crisis of, uh, you know, what, what are we all about in the aftermath of Vietnam? And uh, so when I first came in in 1984, the military was just kind of starting to feel confident again. Uh, and so, you know, President Reagan, in addition to ushering in a series of pay raises and communicating about how important the military was, mm. I mean, he, let's face it, the, he poured a lot of resources into the military in the 80s as well. And all of that uh, really, I think, contributed to uh, tremendous popularity amongst the ranks, at least the way I remember it. In times of today, we have so many unemployed graduates. Are you guys sort of tapping into that level of intellect? 
that's not sort of finding a job anywhere else in, in, in corporate America? Well, we're certainly making the effort. Hmm. Uh, you know, I mentioned that uh, I took a look at some of the, the numbers for recruiting, and, you know, it's I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, $260 million for the Army Guard and somewhere in the neighborhood of $30 million or so for the Air National Guard. We're certainly making a legitimate effort to recruit as aggressively as we can among all eligible men and women in the United States. Uh, I, I, from my point of view, uh, we could hardly be doing a, a more thorough job of reaching out, but we're certainly making the effort. And because our, our intellectual capital is, is important, you know, I mentioned earlier demographic diversity and diversity of thought. Mm. We need the smartest and best people to consider a career in the Army National Guard or the Air National Guard. Uh, we need it. And, and I will tell you that my experience, this is one thing I'll tell you, training officer candidates. We get the best and brightest. Some of those young men and women that I've trained over the years have just been absolute fabulous examples of the best that America has to offer. And um, so we are having success. I've seen it with my own eyes. Some of the fears could be um, from young people that once they join the Army, they can't leave. I mean, how does that work? Uh, can, can people leave the Army anytime? Well, not anytime. Typically, mm. you know, there's a, there's a contract involved, either an enlistment uh, contract or there is a service commitment associated with school in the case of certain educational programs. Mm. So it's not as though you can leave whenever you'd like, but those contracts do expire. And in fact, the majority of people don't serve as long as I have. Uh, the majority of people come, they get something good out of the military, and then they return to the civilian community using, in some cases, skills and experiences that they've had in the military to help bolster their career chances in the civilian community. So what opportunities exist for people after they leave the Army? I mean, can you give us some success stories where people have done really well? Well, actually, after I left the Air Force initially, I did really well. I, start, I, I went to work for a radio station in Omaha, and uh, I became the farm director, and I ended up being the news director for the National Association of Farm Broadcasting, and I uh, ended up working at uh, actually being the farm director for a place called Wade Agribusiness Network. Then there's a radio station for farmers? Oh, you bet. There's, yes, if you've never heard of the National Association of Farm I know. Broadcasting. I know there's a website for farmers who want to date. That's been coming on. on. No, it's true because I was watching TV and there was like a farmersonly.com. And I'm thinking, what is that? Because the moment they say only, I get very like uptight. I say, I've got to go check it. Um, so I checked and, then, and now you're telling me there's a radio station for farmers. Well, there's a whole radio. There's a whole radio association for farm broadcasters. Oh, yeah. For example. So, the, what do you guys talk about? The price of corn? Yes, absolutely. The price of corn, price of soybeans, cattle, hogs in the Midwest. In the South, it'd be the price of cotton. So that's what's uh, been so, competing with my my radio broadcast. Uh, well, in certain areas, yes, in mm. certain areas. Uh, but um, but I had a lot of success in that field, and I I really enjoyed it a great deal. And one of the things that made me successful in that field was the discipline and the really the the sense of values that I had gained from being in the military. Oh, that, being among you guys, I tell, I'm, I'm telling you, being among you guys uh, at, at these Army events, the, the whole room fills up with values like I've never felt before. 
you know, the respect, the honor, the, the, the sense of loyalty, the sense of servitude. Um, it's just overwhelming, but it just makes me, you know, uh, so proud that there are people like this that exist in our society. Because you go anywhere else, and it's very blasé, you know. I do know. <laughs> I, I, I mm. know firsthand. And the interesting thing about that, Vip, is that the men and women that you saw in that room at our National Guard Bureau diversity conference, mm. those men and women are members of their communities. They're members of their communities in South Dakota. They're members of their communities in Alabama and in Georgia and in every state that you could possibly imagine, in Nebraska, in New York State, all across this country, all 54 states, all three territories, and the District of Columbia, the 54, men and women are in the National Guard that you might not ever think. You're looking at your neighbor, and you don't know that they're one of the people that are helping to keep you safe. And I think that that's, that's really one of the great strengths of the National Guard, is that we live and work in the communities that, uh, that we are sworn to defend. One thing I wanted to ask you was, can only citizens join the National Guard, or can green card holders join? Because there is a, a key difference. Well, they certainly can, Vip, and uh, green card holders can join the National Guard. And in fact... You and know, they, can, the National- they can join for active duty? They can, uh, if they meet other standards. Oh, yeah, and, as long uh, as they meet the other standards. But this is something that, you know, you can't really control, because if you're a new immigrant like myself... And, and you just have a green card. It's uh, true, but were, were you able to meet other standards like age, for example? No. Uh, yeah. Fitness, no. It. Intellect, no. So taking that forward, <laughs> taking that forward very quickly, um, how is the National Guard, the U.S. Army, meeting the needs of tomorrow's world? Because a battlefield is changing. You know, technology is changing, education's changing, cultural alignment's changing. Um, how quickly do you find the U.S. Army responding to each of these? Well, I will tell you that from, from the military point of view, we are, we are future-focused. Of course, we're, we're present-focused. That's mm. the nature of what we do. But we are also very future-focused. I'll give you, my direct supervisor, for example, is a graduate of a school in the Air Force known as the School of Advanced Air and Space Power Studies. And, and SAS, as, it known, as it's known, produces strategists for the Air Force. Right. And so we have a whole cadre of very smart men and women mm-hmm. whose primary expertise is in the study of and recommendation and advice giving to senior leaders on strategy, which is ultimately the influence of human behavior. And so we have a whole group of people who are thinking very hard about the future and what's the best way to influence the behavior of our enemies such that we can preserve the peace and security that we've come to enjoy in the United States. Beyond the issue of strategy, though, I mean, there are, we obviously have a bunch of smart people who are thinking very hard about what the right mix of equipment and forces and uh, future basing and all these kinds of issues. We have very, very smart senior leaders who are thinking very hard about all of those kinds of things. And so from my point of view, as somebody who's been around 30 years, I feel very comfortable mm-hmm. that 30 years from now, we're going to have forces both in the Air Force and in the Army and in the Marines and Navy, for that matter, that are ready and prepared 
to meet the challenges that any enemy is going to throw against us. So, I mean, that's a that's a vague answer, but from my point of view, it's a clear one in that we've got people working on it. But our message is loud and clear. Major Peter Shin, thank you for coming on the show. It's been my pleasure. Vip, thank you so much. Thank you and all your colleagues for guarding our families, guarding this great nation, and guarding our Constitution. You make our freedom possible. And on that note, I'm going to say hooah. Hooah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. That was the insightful Major Peter Shin giving a boots-on-the-ground version of what it means to protect this great country, the U.S. of A. Your comments and your followers are so very welcome on my Twitter account at Vip Jaswal and my Facebook page. Just type in Vip Jaswal Report. A special shout-out of thanks to my wonderful team, William Sanchez and Rick Buser. I'll be back next Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern. Until then, I wish you a wonderful evening tonight with your loved ones. And until next Sunday, have a productive and a happy week ahead. 